right, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number 6. Exodus 6, and in just a moment we'll begin reading in verse number 26. We're going to look this morning at uh, the remainder of chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. You all know my pace in preaching, so I'll set you at ease by noting that I'll move much faster than usual this morning. I'll speak quickly, and you'll have to listen quickly as well. Last week, we kicked off um, the month of October's emphasis, which is Who's Your One? And uh, Who's Your One is about identifying uh, one person in our lives who need to hear the life-saving and the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You look out across the lostness of the world, it can feel overwhelming. Um, if you were here in a part of our Global Impact Conference a few weeks ago, you, you, you heard numbers of billions with a B, billions of people who, who don't know the name of Jesus. Even within our own nation, uh, there are hundreds of millions of people who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus. Even within the Mid-South area, there are hundreds of thousands of people who don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. And that can feel very overwhelming. You, you approach kingdom advancement the same way you eat an elephant. You know, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. And so identifying one person, we're encouraging each member of our church to identify at least one person in their life who needs to hear and believe the message of the gospel and then pray persistently for their salvation. Be faithful to go to them with the message of the gospel. Our question last week was, who's your one? And I toyed with the idea of uh, continuing our break from Exodus and looking at another passage uh, to sort of continue that who's your one emphasis. But the more I looked at, at this week's text, and I, I've known it was coming for some time, uh, the more convinced I became this week that it really, it really suits our, our purpose here. We asked last week, who's your one? We really need to follow that question with, what's your message? If you, if you know who the people are in your life who, who need a touch from Jesus, you need to be crystal clear as you prepare to approach them and as you pray for them about what it is that they need to hear. Uh, there's all kinds of confusion, it seems, in our day and age about what the gospel really is. But I, I want us to be able to dis dismiss this morning with a clear, concise gospel message that is easily and warmly communicated uh, to the ones that we've identified even last week. Who's your one last week? It's what's your message this week. In preaching classes, I always tell students, you, you need to master your passage in such a way that if I, if I wake you up on Saturday night at 2 a.m., and just shake you awake and I say, what are you preaching about tomorrow? That you're able to say in a very short sentence what the sermon is about. You need to know it that well. And, and so in, in a short sentence, here's what the message is about. Here's what our passage is about. That God is better than everything else. That's the message of our text. Now, we're looking at, if you're familiar with Exodus at all or you're thumbing through your Bibles in preparation for our reading in just a moment, you're noting we're looking at the ten plagues this morning. There's, a, there's some redundancy about those plagues. God is bringing judgment. He's bringing judgment. He's bringing judgment. Bad things are happening. Bad things are happening. Bad things are happening. But the, the way they're, they're cast, 
And the way God moves in judgment is, is set such that we are to observe in these chapters that God is greater, that God is better, that God is superior to all other gods, and especially the gods held to in the Egyptian religion of Moses' day. So with all of that in mind, I want to invite you to look there with me, Exodus 6, beginning in verse number 26. We won't read all of these chapters, but we'll read some sections along the way. Let's stand together. We'll begin reading in chapter 6 and verse 26, and read through chapter 7 and verse number 13. Exodus 6, 26. It was this Aaron and Moses whom the Lord told, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their divisions. Moses and Aaron were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in order to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to them, I am Yahweh, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, since I'm such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? The Lord answered Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you, then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand on Egypt and bring the divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went, on, went in to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Here we've barely read the introductory to these chapters, but a pattern has been established for us that holds pretty consistently through these chapters. Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh. They compel him to let the people go. They perform works in his presence so that he might be convinced of the truth of their message. And then Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he refuses to let them go. This happens not once, not twice, but ten times in the next few chapters. In each case, the way they are framed, the way the plagues are framed, we have a demonstration of God's superiority over some God worshipped within Egyptian religion. Now let's back up for a moment, sort of give an overview if you're new to the series or new to Bible studies in general. God is at work in the Old Testament in raising up the nation of Israel as his chosen people. In fact, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and then again in Genesis chapter 15, God calls a man named Abraham to himself. And he says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. God sets his love and affection and favor on Abraham, and he says, you're going to have a son, and through that son, the nations of the world will be blessed. 
Abraham bore Isaac, Isaac bore Jacob, and Jacob bore 12 sons that eventually migrate down to the land of Egypt. They settle into Egypt by the providence of God and through the circumstances of life under the leadership of their brother Joseph. Joseph once rose to the position of prime minister in Egypt, and so the Israelite people dwelling in the land of Egypt once enjoyed uh, some prominence. They were celebrated people in the land of Egypt. But Exodus 1 tells us that there arose a new king in Egypt who knew not Joseph, and things changed drastically for the Israelite people. Because of the great number of the Israelites within the land of Egypt, they were a threat to the Egyptian people and and Egyptian power, so they were enslaved. They were oppressed as a people. They were brickmakers and builders for hundreds of years under Egyptian rule. Then God appeared to Moses in Exodus 3 in a bush that burned but was not consumed. And he said, Moses, you're going to lead my people out of their bondage. I have heard the cry of my people. After all of these years, I'm going to intervene in history, and I'm going to bring my people out of their oppression and to the promised land, to a land that flows with milk and honey. Here Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh to make their initial request, let God's people go. Pharaoh resists. Now God has already indicated for us in the book of Exodus that it's his intent to work in such a way that not only do the Israelites know, but that the Egyptians know who the one true and living God really is. All over the book of Exodus, God is demonstrating his superiority over every other God. Go back to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and says, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. This is my name. He reveals himself in a special way to Moses, in a way he had not until then, in order to indicate that he is the one and the true living God. In Exodus 20, when the Ten Commandments are given, God says, you you shall not invoke my name in vain. My name is not to be batted about loosely. My name is unlike any other name. He shows himself to be superior to any and all other gods, especially the gods of Egypt. His power is revealed in his election of Israel as his special people, and they're being set apart from the nation of Egypt. His power is revealed in great acts of provision. He provides for the people of Israel manna from heaven and quail from meat and water from a rock. He provides for them a cloud for shade by day and a pillar of fire for direction and aid by night. He parts the Red Sea. He moves the waters in order that his people would pass over. Over and over and over again in the book of Exodus, God is demonstrating his power over all and his superiority above all. But here in Exodus 7 and following, as these 10 plagues unfold, his superiority over the gods of Egyptian religion are made crystal clear. Now, there's a message that runs through chapters 7 through 10 that's easily observed. That God is greater, that God is stronger, that God is more powerful, that God is unmatched by any earthly power. Pharaoh cannot withstand the assault of God. He cannot protect his people from the plagues that God would work against them. But looking a little deeper at Egyptian culture, it really becomes clear God is 
emphasizing his superiority over every other god. The first plague in chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, God turns the water of the river Nile into blood. The Nile River was the lifeblood of the nation of Egypt. Virtually every piece or part of creation was assigned a certain deity or a certain god. There was a special god that ruled over the Nile River, the lifeblood of the nation of Egypt. And God literally turns the Nile into blood, demonstrating his superiority over every god supposed to control the created order within the land of Egypt. In the second plague in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, God brings a plague of many frogs to the land of Egypt. For some of you grade school boys, that sounds really exciting. But for most of us, it sounds just as it was, horrifying. We, we have an exceptional number of frogs that gather at our stoop when the sun sets and the light comes on in the evening. The boys love it, Brandy not so much. But those few dozen frogs pale in comparison to the kind of frog plague that God works in Exodus chapter 8. There are so many frogs that Pharaoh eventually asked Moses, could you please pray that God would do something with this frog situation? And they all die, and they're piled in what the Bible describes a good number heaps. They're, they're great masses of frogs piled up in the land. Now, this may not seem like the kind of thing that would connect up with Egyptian religion, but Egyptian religion had a, a frog god who, who ruled in, in various ways. He was the Egyptian god of the Nile. Not only has the Nile, the lifeblood of Egypt, been turned to blood by the power of God, but God has demonstrated his superiority over the god of the Nile, the frog god, by bringing uh, many, many frogs to the land of, of Egypt. In the third plague in chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, God uh, turns uh, gnats against the people. Verse 16 says, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, and it will become gnats throughout the land of Egypt. There was believed to be a God over the earth, a God over the dirt. And here Aaron stretches the staff, and the dirt beneath their feet turns to gnats or to lice in some of your translations. And that may be the more accurate description of what God does in this third plague. God is superior to their God of the earth. He is Lord over heaven and earth. In the fourth plague in chapter 8 verses 20 through 32, God sends a great swarm of flies against the Egyptian people. They are everywhere. If you can imagine for a moment the frustration that's brought about when there is but one fly in your house. We, we, are, we are militant when there's one fly in the house. We take great pains to rid ourselves of one fly. And here they're everywhere. There is no escaping the presence of flies within the Egyptian territory. Again, this may seem a thing that's disjointed from Egyptian religion, but within Egyptian religion there is literally a fly god depicted in art as a, a man with the head of a fly. God says, even when it comes to the insect world, I am superior to all other gods, unsurpassed in my power. The fifth plague in chapter 9 and verses 1 through 17, God brings about the death of the livestock. This time God makes a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. Only the Egyptian livestock dies. 
the livestock owned, possessed by the Egyptian people dies. All of their livestock dies. A direct assault against the cow god of the Egyptian people. Yes, there was a cow god, depicted much like the fly god, except without the head of a fly, it had the head of a cow. In the sixth plague, there was ash thrown in the air, and everywhere the ash was scattered by the winds, it brought bulls to the body of the people it touched, only not the Israelite people. They were ceremonially unclean and unable to participate in so much of Egyptian worship. In the seventh plague, God brought thunder and hail that destroyed the crops, demonstrating his superiority over the Egyptian god of the sky. You see how God is identifying every god in the pantheon of Egyptian religion and saying to them, I am better, I am better, I am better, I am, I am, I am. In the eighth plague, God brings a swarm of locusts. Those locusts are brought in by the wind and they are taken out by the wind and they create utter chaos in the land. A direct assault against the Egyptian god of weather, of wind, and of order. God says, I'll, I'll show you what wind and order looks like. I am again better. In the eighth or the ninth plague, rather, God brings darkness over the land of Egypt for a period of three days. A direct assault on the Egyptian god of the sun. God says, I am better. And in the tenth plague, as the firstborn of all Egypt dies, God makes a direct assault on the worship of Pharaoh and his firstborn son. In the Egyptian system, Pharaoh was a god. And next in line to Pharaoh in terms of power, in terms of authority, was his firstborn son. And here, by the plague of God, the firstborn son is killed. And the Pharaoh is shown to be without power in the face of the great God I am. Now, we've talked about how this all connects up in a variety of different ways. And even beyond our being aware of what Egyptian religion looks like, it is abundantly clear to us in these chapters that God is in charge, right? That God is better that God is superior, that he is unmatched in, in his power, that God is greater than the counterfeit gods. But this may still, still feel a little distant. It, it, may, it may feel like this is something that was specific to the Egyptian people. After all, none of us have fly gods or cow gods or strange gods such as we've described here. No, but you've got gods. Even the most staunch atheist is a is a practitioner of some worship we all worship everyone worships what you'll determine is is who you'll worship you'll make that decision now some of you may make a decision to worship yourself in the pursuit of pleasure and passion and money and power it can express itself in a variety of different ways but we will all invariably worship and the message that I want you to know that is available to us and, and irrevocably so that, that needs to be heard by a lost and dying world is that Jesus is better than the gods you may be serving. That Jesus is better than the habit that you're serving. That Jesus is better than your sexual sin. He's better than that. That the fulfillment and the joy and the peace and the gladness that we have in Jesus cannot be replicated elsewhere. That you can't find it out there. 
and I'm telling you, we, we live in a culture that is saturated by the pursuit of comfort and pleasure. And what every man, woman, and child will invariably find in their pursuit of these comforts and pleasures is that at the end of the day, they only leave you jaded and frustrated and empty and longing for more. Only Jesus can bring lasting satisfaction. This is always the case, isn't it? Think about the classic examples of the pursuit of happiness in our culture. If it's it's academic which is a bigger deal than I think that we realize sometimes. You know what happens when you graduate from a terminal degree program? You start thinking about your next academic pursuit, and you realize this is not the end-all, be-all I thought it might be. You know what happens when you win the the championship in a sporting event? You know what happens in the mind of Nick Saban about midnight, the night he wins the next national championship? He starts thinking about how to get the next one. You know what happens the morning after you wake up from from the highest intoxication that you've experienced in your life, perhaps the night before? You start thinking about ways that you can recreate that experience. I'm just, I want you to know, and we need to stand ready to tell the world that what you're chasing after cannot satisfy you. God is greater than the counterfeit gods that have enslaved you. You will never satisfy their want for your servitude. But there is a God in heaven who has loved us so much that he would send his son. Come not to be served, but to serve. And he's promised that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The message of the gospel above all else is this, that Jesus is better. His superiority is demonstrated even in the way he has worked for our salvation. That he would lay aside the glories of heaven, walk among us, that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled. What you couldn't do, Jesus did. And then he died for the things that you have done in order that you could be credited with the things that he has done. They took his dead and lifeless body and buried him outside the city. But on the third day, he began to breathe again. A stone rolled away and Jesus walked forth. You know why? Because he's better. Our our message and perhaps the most compelling way to communicate the gospel in such a sin-sick and perverted generation is to declare to the world about us, Oh, just taste and see, the Lord our God is good. Jesus is better. God shows that he is greater than the counterfeit gods. The display of God's power and ways thought to be under the control of Egyptian gods show his supremacy over all the gods of the world. Let me show you something else here just quickly. With each plague, God has a missional purpose. Do you understand what I mean by that? That God intends in each plague that his glory be shown and told throughout the world. These displays of God's power are meant to show both the Egyptians and the Israelites who God is. Go back to chapter 7 and verse number 5 just quickly. We read this moment a moment ago, but this can be missed, and it appears at a number of places throughout these chapters. In verse 5, the Bible says, 
The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. Because of the plagues, they will know. They will see. They will know. God God has a missional purpose even in bringing the plagues against the people. That they would know. This has always been the case. Understand that the Great Commission is not a new development in the New Testament. That God has always been at work throughout his uh, history, throughout the history of his people, that the nations would know. When he calls Abraham apart in Genesis 12 and again chapter 15, he calls him apart in order that the nations would be blessed through his lineage. God is working in the plagues that many would know his name. The supremacy of Jesus is central to the message of the gospel. Our proclamation needs to center around the supremacy of Jesus over all things. There is no one like Jesus. Only Jesus saves. Secondly, if if we were to read through, and, and I hope that you'll commit time this afternoon to doing that. Time will not permit that we read through all of these chapters this morning, but you should read through. What you'll see, and the pattern was set in the passage that we read, is that there are times when the magicians in Pharaoh's court seek to match the power of Moses and Aaron. In reality, the power is not Moses and Aaron's. The power is God's. But God has granted the ability to operate in his power. And and they match. For instance, in chapter 7, where we read moments ago, Moses, or Aaron rather, throws down his staff and it turns into a serpent. And then Pharaoh calls for the magicians, and they come in, and they throw down their staff, and it turns to a serpent. Now, the trick is Aaron's serpent eats the magician's serpent. So take that, magicians. here's, Here's the point. The magicians, the sorcerers, are not without some power and ought not to be played with. You ought not trifle with such things. This is that season of the year when there's a certain fascination with all things evil, with all things spirit. You should be very careful as believers in trifling with such things. There is a power there that is rather dangerous. But at the same time, it ought be noted that that power pales in comparison to the power of our God. In fact, by the time you get to the third plague, the magicians are no longer able to keep up. And by the time you get to the sixth plague, they're not even able to stand in the presence of Moses and Aaron as plague after plague after plague has its effect, uh, not only on the Egyptian people, but even on the magicians. It's also worth noting here that the magicians never have the power to reverse what God has done. They, They only have the ability to contribute to the disaster brought about by the plague. The magicians only have destructive power, but they cannot reverse the destruction that God is working as the plague unfolds in their midst. These spirits only work to destroy. They only work to tear down. Jesus says, I've come to give life, but the thief has come to steal and to kill and destroy. That's not just a New Testament game plan. That has always been the plan of Satan from the very dawn of history. God's power cannot be matched by the counterfeit gods of this world. And you need to know that too. You need to know that running after these 
counterfeit sources of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction cannot do for you what they promise they will do. When we see at the end from the beginning, we, we look at lives that are just destroyed by, by the worship of counterfeit gods. The pursuit of things that are believed to bring about joy and gladness. And we see the destruction that they bring. Look at drug addiction. This is probably the easiest observed of these examples. Why why do people begin to use substances? Because they're believed to bring them joy and happiness and peace. And you fast forward in one's life five, ten years, even maybe months or just a year down the road, and you see the way that it's destroyed their body and destroyed their life, and in many instances destroyed the life of their family. It's easy to see the end from the beginning, but we are all too ready, all too willing to buy the lie of the counterfeit God that this will be the thing that brings us optimal joy, optimal peace, optimal happiness. The danger for you this morning in hearing an illustration like that is that you'll assign that kind of foolishness to the kind of people who would use a substance to bring them joy when you yourself are pursuing other counterfeit gods to bring the same kind of experience into your life. Good things become bad things when we bow our knee and pay our worship to the hobbies and the interest in our life. There's a a dangerous and deadly line that can very quickly be crossed. And all of us are apt to do it. None of us escape this inclination of humanity to go after things we believe to bring us joy, only to find in the end that they have brought us death. God's greater than the counterfeit gods, and his power is unmatched by that of the counterfeit gods. There's a a third observation we might make on the basis of these chapters. That God is working both in salvation and in judgment to make himself known. Y'all tracking with me? Turn to chapter 9 and verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13, the Bible says, The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Tell him, this is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Otherwise, I'm going to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. Then you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Verse 15 says, now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I have let you live for this purpose to show you my power and to make my name known in all of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, God saves to make his name known. We've said often over the past several weeks, the gospel came to you because it was headed to someone else. God works in salvation so that the fame of his name is known from one end of creation to the other. But there's a second layer here, isn't there? That God likewise works in judgment in order to make the fame of his name known from one end of creation to the other. I'll not get off campus today without having to address it if I don't hear, but someone, in fact, many someones will ask about this business of Pharaoh and his heart hardening. The question will be this, did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer to that question is 
Yes, that's exactly what happened. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And here the Bible says that God is patiently persevering with Pharaoh, even in his hardness of heart, in order that the fame of his name be known to the very ends of the earth. The sooner you reconcile, by the way, for you armchair theologians, the absolute sovereignty of God over all things and the absolute responsibility of man to bow the knee to Jesus, the sooner all of these theological issues become much, much easier to absorb. There are certain things we accept by faith, like the Trinity, that God is three in one. You don't have a section in your math book for that. Like Jesus as 100% divine and 100% man. Contrary to what your high school football coach says, you only have 100% to give. There is truly no 110%. And there are no 200% men, except in the case of Jesus, all divine and all human. God works in salvation in the same way. There's an element of mystery here. And the more comfortable you become with this unresolved tension in the Scripture... Uh, both sides of which should be celebrated and, and greatly defended as both sides are taught in the Scripture, the more understandable so many of these things become. God is working both in the salvation of His people and the judgment of many in order to make His name known to the ends of the earth. Again, this is not a New Testament development. It's always been the plan of God. Specifically in the plagues, God says, I'm going to work and the people of Egypt are going to know. Because of the pain that's experienced, you're, you're going to know that I am, I am, I am is the true and living God. Don't you know that there's grace in judgment? How many of you, and this is a real question, not rhetorical, show of hands. How many of you came to faith in Jesus or have been sanctified greatly, or, or, or just have grown leaps and bounds because of the pain that has been brought into your life. Show of hands. Do you see what I mean by there's grace in judgment? For me and for many of you, it was pain, it was loss, it was grief that God used to condition our hearts to receive well the good seed of the gospel. God is working in salvation and in judgment to make his name known. I always try to refrain from offering commentary on news items of the day, and I, I will refrain from being very specific. But, but the more I see and hear in our culture the things that are being said and celebrated, the, the more convinced I'm becoming that God may be pleased in days not far off to make his name known in judgment in a nation like ours, circling the drain faster and faster with each passing day. But you make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, whether it be in salvation or in judgment, the name of our God will be worshipped. Here's the last thing. This is a general observation, but it's especially spelled out for us in the latter part of the passage that we just read in chapter 9, verses 13 and following. 
God says, by now I could have brought a plague and had you obliterated from all the earth. But in my patience, I've allowed that the plagues be withheld such that you could survive. I've kept them back. I've allowed you to live through the plagues in order that you might know that I am who I am. Your life and my life is in the hands of a powerful God. You are alive at this moment because God in heaven allows you to live. You, if you really want to get at the heart of a culture's theology, attend funerals. Sometimes scary things can be said at funerals. Crazy things can be said at funerals. And here, here's one that I often hear. And specifically, it was a few years ago, I think the first time I ran into this, it was, it was a child that had passed away, and they were gonna, there were some friends that were going to stand and speak at, at the funeral. I, just for future reference, if you ask Brother Wade's opinion, I'll always encourage you to not let people randomly stand and speak at a memorial service. You lose control. It's like, it's like the, the Baptist business meeting of yesteryear. You never know what's going to happen. But the brother was trying to really comfort the family, and, and he said, I want you to know that, that God didn't take your child. And I thought, well, I'd love to know where she's at. And I, I realized that the effort there, what was, what was being a, a, attempted, but trying to get God off the hook by suggesting that somehow he's disengaged is just wrongheaded, and it's not biblical either. God is over life and death. He has marked our days. Your life and my life is in the hands of a powerful, powerful God. The venom that is spewed by so many against Christ and his church, the inhale that they take to exhale the poisonous things they say against Jesus was given to them by a powerful God who rules and reigns. He has given us the very breath that we breathe. We are here because he has allowed us to be here. My life and your life is in the hands of a powerful, powerful God. And brothers and sisters, I would just admonish you this morning that it is a scary, scary thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So, someone asked me this week why the Bible says that we should fear the Lord. My illustration for the fear of the Lord has always worked this way and it relates to my children. If I tell my boys, especially the boys, the older boys, go clean your room, I want them to go clean their room because they love and respect their daddy. But if they only go clean the room because they know I like their pants up, that's good enough for me. <laughs> Gets the job done. There are times for us when a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord is a motivation in the right kind of direction. Your life and my life is in the hands of a powerful God, a God who works both in salvation and in judgment in order to make his name known, a God whose power exceeds that of every counterfeit God, a God who is greater than the gods you may find yourself serving. A God who is so gracious in his ways that he would send his son to die as our substitute that we might have by faith in Jesus everlasting life.
Now, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God that I want to serve.